This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is March 31st, 2022, and this is episode 283. I'm Scott Lundbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have plans to implement UNDRIP in BC, to cut our federal greenhouse gas emissions, and we're buying fighter jets. But first, as always, thank you patrons for supporting the show weekly, monthly. Join them at patreon.com slash Or if you can't afford to right now, Maybe go out and leave us a review. I don't think we've had an Apple Podcast review in years. It would be great to see new ones there. Tweet about us. Get more people listening. We'd love to have you. First up, let's talk about Horgan's latest five-year plan. No, this isn't a major economic nationalization scheme. Unfortunately, this is a, quote, historic action plan to guide the implementation of UNDRIP in the province. Actually, big piece of big document, frankly, it's a 89 point action plan that follows the passage a couple years ago now of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People bringing the United Nations Declaration into BC law. And this is a seemingly one of kind document in the world on how to move forward on reconciliation in very substantive ways, like beyond all of the high meaning rhetoric we usually see, the territorial acknowledgements and kneeling on graves. This is how do we actually transform the relationship between our province, provincial government and the many indigenous na- nation governments in this province or in these lands. What I first noticed when looking at the press release was the large number of names associated with it, the number of people they got quotes from. Like, this isn't something either of us are very well positioned to critique in many ways. But when I see people like Grand Chief Stuart Phillip of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, who's usually a critic of the government not doing enough on reconciliation, praising this. Uh, Regional Chief Terry T.G. of the BC Assembly of First Nations and many other Indigenous leaders, labor reps, academics, the Human Rights Commissioner, health authority execs, people representing economic trusts. There are a lot of names giving a lot of very good quotes for the government on this, which doesn't tell you that it's a good plan, but it tells you that people who would be likely to critique it if it was a bad plan, are at least on board with trying to make this work. So what's actually in the uh, plan? There's a lot. So there's four overarching themes, first being self-determination and inherent rights of self-government, title and rights of Indigenous people is second, third, ending Indigenous-specific racism and discrimination, and fourth, social, cultural, and economic well-being. These are things spanning them like governance, land and water stewardship, salmon, education, uh, child welfare, policing, data collection, healthcare, sports and rec, languages, climate change, place names, cannabis policy, high-speed internet access. Within every single one of these recommendations, all 89 of them, it also tags which 
ministries of the provincial government will be responsible for implementing them, which does create a bit of a clear who owns that element. Some of these are obviously very big and meaningful things like the first recommendation in the first section is in partnership with the government of Canada, establish a new institute establish a new institution designed and driven by First Nations to provide supports to First Nations in their work of nation and governance rebuilding and boundary resolution in accordance with First Nation law, custom and tradition. This is the thing that I believe got started with the Hoetzoetan during the con- early part of the conflict with Coastal Gaslink up there, where the government said, we need to clarify who the hereditary chiefs are, what their structure is, and support a way that moving forward, the government can work in clear partnership in a nation-to-nation relationship with these uh, nations. And this says we need to do that province-wide, which is great to see. Going down, there are things like in- ensuring that there are regional governance with First Nation participation in regional districts. Uh, in other sections, it's things like have the Attorney General issue guidelines regarding the conduct of civil litigation involving rights of Indigenous people. There are targets for equitable recruitment to people and Indigenous peoples in the public sector. There's implementing multimodal transportation solutions for uh, safe, reliable, and affordable transportation options for First Nations communities, something that I know has been a big issue since Greyhound in particular pulled out of so many communities across this country. I know High-speed internet for everyone is in there. There's a neat one about adopting an inclusive digital font that allows for Indigenous languages to be included in communication, signage, service, and official records. Co-developing BC-specific fiscal frameworks to help make sure that Indigenous nations can take over child and family services. And what else I noticed in here is there's a lot of inclusion of Métis, Inuit, and First Nations. So it's not just the First Nations. I think in BC, we forget that there are Métis and Inuit communities as much as in other provinces. But there's a lot in here to recognize the need to better support the Métis communities in this province and the Inuit who are here as well. And so it's really wide ranging in terms of just the number of things. Like This is a laundry list for every ministry to go back and start getting to work on. I think the biggest criticism though is the one that BC Green MLA Adam Olson, who's a member of the Artlip First Nation himself, brought up. And that's, we don't have metrics in here. We don't have a lot of tangible, how do you know they did this? Like some of them, does an institution exist that's doing the thing it says it's supposed to? That's fine. But in others, it's invest in this thing. There can be different perspectives on what a reasonable investment in certain aspects is. And without those numbers of this much money has gone in or has not gone in, it could be the groundwork for excuse making, as Olson called it. Yeah, there's a lot of these bullet points that also are develop a strategy for something. And what that strategy is, yeah, the level of detail and how it gets executed is going to matter a lot. In that way, that lack of metrics is somewhat familiar to the federal liberal NDP deal we talked about last week. It all blurs together. What is nice to see in this is there's a section at the end on accountability and implementation. 
And it's there, but it's also pretty thin. It notes that the province should work with Indigenous people to, quote, identify suitable tools, indicators, and measures for monitoring, assessing, and reporting the progress. And that annual progress will have to be tabled in the legislature annually. And that's part of the BC DRIP law that was enacted. And then the entire plan will be comprehensively updated within five years. So it's a plan to figure out how to monitor the success of the plan, which is better than nothing. You do need something to be able to go back and look and make sure stuff's actually being done. And yeah, I'm not going to criticize it for that at all, but it's one of these things where it's really going to depend on how it actually gets executed on that. So I have to keep our eye on it. This is, I'm rather optimistic about this. This is a fairly large document, 40 pages with a lot of things for the government to be working on. I'm optimistic they're doing it in good faith and trying to work towards this and that it's not just a, here's what we're saying now and then we'll make excuses later. There will be disappointments, undoubtedly. There always are with government and... They'll have to be held to account when they disappoint us in those ways. Let's jump over to the other big plan of the week. We have eight years to save the world, Scott. We have a emissions reduction plan to get us to 2030 from Trudeau. I've lost count of the number of climate plans. It feels like there's getting. been a bunch. Like I'll give credit to BC. We have Clean BC and it got an update. The 2030 update or whatever. And I think it still has a little bit of a hole in getting us to our targets, but it's still just clean BC. It's just one plan with an update. The, uh, I can fe- follow it. The federal ones feel a little more all over the place. And maybe that's just they haven't had a consistent branding approach the way clean BC has. But yeah, it's... The, the federal plan feels a lot more piecemeal, like back... What is it? They, they did their initial uh, carbon pricing plan, and then came back a few years later to announce that it was going to eventually go up to, was it $170 a ton? And they done a few more announcements over the time. But yeah, you don't get the sense that it's quite the complete project or the the singular vision the way the Clean BC stuff is. When I go to the Government of Canada's Environment and Natural Resources Climate Change section, there's five main pages, the climate plans, plural, and targets, net zero emissions by 2050, carbon pollution pricing, adapting to climate change, and expert engagement initiative. Under the plans, we have the plan we're about to talk about, the 2030 emission reduction plan. We have a healthy environment and a healthy economy, the 2020 plan, a pan-Canadian framework on clean growth and climate change from 2016. We have clean Canada, and we have the climate action map. Clear as mud. What's the uh, bit of sediment being mixed in with water on this one? So the focus on this plan is this challenge of how do we reach our Paris targets of 40% below 2005 emissions by 2030 and the additional government plan of getting to net zero by 2050 when we've had trouble meeting any interim retar- targets. We've not even really had interim targets. We've just had reports coming out that say we're not really on the right track. So this plan is $9 billion, $9.1 billion in new funding to try to accelerate the 
reduction in greenhouse gas emissions across a number of sectors, notably oil and gas, but not entirely. A lot of it is from transportation as well and vehicles. And it's just money kind of scattershotted around in many ways that I it's getting some positive reactions, but I think we're both a little bit skeptical of it. Yeah, particularly when you look at kind of the amount of money they're, they're putting into some of this stuff. The, the building retrofits is $1 billion for a uh, net zero by 2050 plan, doing some better building. And part of that's going to be better building codes and some pilot projects and the like. But a billion dollars in the building industry just doesn't go that far when spread across an entire country. And same thing with the $850 million being put towards the green grid, $2.2 billion going to communities in this. And like you said, there's existing funding for some of this stuff already, but just it would be pretty easy to spend that $9.1 billion on just a single subsection on this and still have things left to do just in that area. Especially because this is a, a eight year plan, so like that, working that out onto a per year basis is just actually not that much money. Yeah, the biggest portion of money is going to promoting electric vehicles. This is money going to charging stations, expanding the incentives the federal government offers. What they have done is increase the targets for new vehicle sales. They're hoping all passenger vehicles will be zero emission vehicles by 2035, which is actually the same as BC's goal from the Clean BC update. There's interim goals as well. By 2026, we're hoping to see 20%. BC is aiming at 26%. And by 2030, the federal government is aiming for 60%. At that point, BC wants 90% zero emission goals. So it's not as optimistic. It's not as ambitious as Clean BC, but it is getting praise for accelerating some of the goals that I think the federal government was looking at 2040 in the past, or maybe even later for 100% ZEV sales. And hey, maybe federally we will beat them if BC is pushing them as hard as we are. Maybe. BC just isn't that big a market within Canada. So I'd have a, a trouble seeing BC being slightly more aggressive on the interim goals, really making that big a difference. To really do it, you have to get Ontario and Quebec. To, to have the same path as BC. One of the other big criticisms I saw, and this came from environmental defense as well as a couple other environmental groups out there, is there's a lot of elements of this plan, particularly on helping industries and the oil and gas sector invest in carbon capture, utilization, and storage. This has been the pipe dream of the net zero approach for quite a while. I know Alberta... I remember in the late in the Kyoto era, Ralph Klein would talk about, we'll just throw money at carbon capture and that'll solve it. And it's there is elements of it that seem like they're optimistic, but so much of it seems like the tech that's still five to ten years away when we need solutions now. I'm not opposed to it. Like I the ideas of okay, we'll burn coal and stick a CO2 scrubber on the exhaust stack never really made much sense to me. And that is probably a bad way to go about carbon capture technologies. But you have stuff such as uh, industrial heating that is just very hard to find an alternative for that's not easily electrified. 
where maybe it does make sense to pursue carbon capture for those technologies. The, the cement industry produces a huge amount of uh, CO2. It's around 5% of global emissions. That Part of that's just the chemical reactions that happen as concrete cures, but a huge portion of that is also just the process of making cement and it needs to be fired at a, a very high temperature and you can't easily electrify that and it may be the case where putting a carbon capture system on cement manufacturing facilities is the, the better way to get to low carbon cement on which is a, a very critical building material for, for huge amounts of infrastructure and well pretty much anything that gets built at, at any real size includes some amount of concrete so stuff like that i i can really see the use case for and i think there's particularly among a lot of environmental activists a tendency to be aggressively dismissive of carbon capture and a general skepticism technology-based solutions in in general but particularly carbon capture seems to be one that i think unfairly gets maligned because we would like to be able to do it both for the the hard to get rid of par carbon parts of the economy, but also because, hey, we've pumped a lot of uh, stuff in the air over the last uh, century and a bit, and it would sure be nice to be able to pull at least some of that out. Yeah, and that's where one of the last sections comes in. That's $780 million going to what's described as, quote, the power of nature. And I'll just read from the press release. This will quote, help Canada's oceans, wetlands, peatlands, grasslands, and agricultural lands capture and store carbon and explore the potential for negative emission technologies in the forest sector. It's, Which, a, it's a negative emission technology the plant, in the forest plant the sector trees. tree? Yes. It's branding I hate because you could just say we're just going to plant more trees. And no, fine, that's no, we, a good we need thing to, to do. We need to techify this. F find a way to extract carbon on the blockchain. Not a serious the plan suggestion. is yeah the plan is getting praise from some of the friends of the show at clean energy canada they describe it as a, an achievable but ambitious path similarly the canadian climate institute their initial response praises the plan as i think mostly for giving us targets i think that's where the focus of most of the policy wonks are looking at this. They're looking and saying, look, this gives us interim targets. We'll need to dig in for a while about all of the specific policies and how well they're implemented. A lot of work is still needed, as others say. But we have numbers here. We have sector by sector targets. For example, oil and gas needs to cut its emissions by 31%. It's nice to just put the number of what our targets are for that. And now... We just need to start making it there. I guess we're a little hung up on, do they have enough to get us there? But at least we know what there is. Yeah, it's a start for sure. And it is built on some past work, but it still feels a little um, insufficient in a lot of ways. Best case scenario, we see a lot more in the budget that drops a week from today on April 7th which I guess we'll be covering next week for sure. Yeah. And we, we going from there. 
moving on to our next segment, Lightning Strikes Twice. One thing that will definitely be in the budget is $19 billion for some new fighter planes, as the Liberals announced earlier this week that they had, in fact, finally selected a fighter to replace the aging CF-18s, and uh, long-time watchers of Canadian politics will be familiar with the one they ended up choosing, the F-35, the Lightning II. And should we just go through the, the history of this one? Because it has been a, a long, multi- at this point, going into two decades, or into its second decade of a, a saga, yeah, just selecting which plane to, to purchase. Yes, take me back to the wonderful year of 2010, to begin us. Yeah, so back in 2010, the Canadian Air Force was looking at their fighter fleets and saying, oh yeah, these are starting to get pretty old, we're starting to have metal fatigue issues, that the air drafts are just going to need to be replaced soon. So the government of the day, under Stephen Harper, looked at that issue, decided, okay, we'll buy the F-35, we're going to get 65 of them, and we're going to sole source the bid. So you mean that the CF-18s that were introduced before I was born in 1983 are perhaps a little old to be flying yeah they they are definitely uh, a little old they've been through a uh, couple modernization programs a couple life extension programs over there and haven't we all <laughs> yeah so the thing about aircraft in general and particularly uh high performance aircraft like fighters is that they they can't fly forever the metal literally yeah these aren't to Havilland beavers they do have a shelf life the beaver can fly forever, Scott. I think even that might need uh, some maintenance after a while. But yeah, a pl- planes literally wear out. Fatigue sets in. The airframes start to develop cracks. It, it becomes a real issue. And yeah, at some point, you just can't keep flying them anymore. If you don't have a replacement for the, uh, the CF-18s, they will literally not be able to fly anymore. But going back to where things were, uh, that set off a huge political firestorm. The Harper government eventually walked that back from a, we're definitely going to buy 65 F-35s to we're going to hold an open competition for it. And that didn't end up happening before the Liberals got elected in 2015. They campaigned on an unequivocal rejection of the F-35, Way to go like the exact opposite yeah. way. It's just like, if they're going to go sole source, we'll go all but one source. <laughs> yeah, which uh, was a little tricky when they also promised to have a fair and open competition for it. And rejecting the front runner in a fair and open competition doesn't uh, exactly meet the definition of fair and open. So yeah, that they eventually ended up having to walk that back to, okay, we'll look at all of the options here. In the end, that basically meant the F-35, the Super Hornet, which is basically an upgraded version of the Hornets, the Eurofighter Typhoon, the French Raphael, and the Saab Gripen. And Saab has apparently been running a lot of ads in Canada recently, like targeted social media ads. I keep hearing people are like, why am I getting ads about Canada needing to buy this fighter? I don't make that decision. As a random person, yeah, on there's Twitter. definitely a lot of them. Although I didn't get many uh, Sab ads. Instead, the thing I 
got a whole lot of advertising for was from Boeing for the... Let me just pull it up. Yeah, the FA-18 Block 3 Super Hornet as the uh, the fighter jet that Boeing apparently thinks I have a decision-making role in because they were advertising it to me. I'm actually really curious why some people I know got nothing but SAB ads and I got a lot of Super Hornet ads. I just want to know why these companies think Twitter and Facebook ads are the way they're going to influence. Are they thinking MPs are going to see it and then take that or bureaucrats are going to see it and be like, that'll affect my analysis now. It is weird. weird, Yeah. Like the defense industry of all the industries out there has a very well-established lobbying arm. This is amateur hour stuff. They, there's a military industrial complex for a reason. They know how to get money and a lot of it. But I guess a few hundred or a few thousand on Facebook ads doesn't hurt in a budget of a few million to so you could at least geotarget it to just Ottawa, the place where those decisions are actually made. I don't know, it's weird. The saga didn't end in 2015, though, and it doesn't quite get us to the ads we're seeing today. In 2017, we did actually try to buy some airplanes. Yeah, so originally the government had looked at buying a few Super Hornets just as a stopgap. That ended up not panning out for a couple different reasons. But instead, they found some secondhand Hornets from Australia. So this was announced in 2017 with the first aircraft, with the deal being finalized in 2019 and the first aircraft entering Canadian service later that year. Government says that the program, the acquisition cost was about $340 million. Total program cost was pegged by PBO at about $1.09 billion. So because the government had delayed for so long... We literally we, we just needed to patch some of the holes in our air force by buying a bunch of hornets that were not exactly spring chickens either. The, the Aussies, I think, ended up doing their F eighteen procurement a f- couple of years after us. Like rather than early eighties, it was like mid eighties to to maybe late eighties. Anyway, they're apparently in slightly better shape than ours, but yeah, we we spent or will spend a total of over a billion dollars to deal with the fact that we delayed so long on the F-35. Listen, as long as none of them caught fire on their way to Canada, we're doing better than our approach to buying submarines. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, our submarine program's a whole other... uh, Man, we should have tried to get in on the Aussies deal with the Brits and the uh, States that they did last year on that. We're going to have to replace the Victoria classes pretty soon anyway. It's not like we have a a great plan in place now, and getting in on that program would have made a lot of sense. So, at this point, it is is largely motivated by a renewed focus on military capacity in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a focus on what is everyone doing for NATO. It- I, I don't think that's entirely the case. They, they probably wanted to have this announced if it was a question of whether or not it would be right now or in a couple months that they, they may have decided to make the announcement a little sooner. But th- this has been something that has been in the works for, as we've talked about, over a decade. And Maybe this is the thing that finally got the government out of a perpetual decision-making mode and actually 
or perpetual study mode and actually make a decision on this. But it was always the case that we were going to be getting new aircraft at some point around this point. Probably a little earlier. I, I remember when I was uh, a teenager looking at joining the military and think, oh, I wanted to be a pilot. Uh, turns out I'm red dream colorblind, so that didn't happen. But the idea was that we would have had the whatever the Hornets would have been replaced with would have been flying around 2017. And that just, that plan came and went. And I guess now with two different angles that are critiquing the government, right? You have the conservatives who are pointing out that this is coming to their position after wasting a lot of time and money. Not the billion on the Aussie F-18s. It's it's a lot, but it's small in the terms of the amounts we're talking about, because this $19 billion to get these planes will then also see tens of billions to maintain them over their lifespan. So this is... I'm fine with them taking their time to get it right. On the other side, the NDP's statement... You're going to fucking hate this, Scott. <laughs> In 2015, they point out that he promised to get lower-priced option to match Canada's defense needs. They say, New Democrats have called on the government to use a made-in-Canada approach to replacing our aging jets. We call on them right, to make sure those this. jets are secured. <laughs> Any procurement must provide much-needed jobs in the Canadian aerospace industry in cities like Montreal and Winnipeg. So, we shouldn't choose these. We should choose a fighter that doesn't exist offered by a company that doesn't know how to build it. Let's do the Avro Arrow 2. Except Avro was actually around it and had built fighters before the Arrow. Yeah, I was going to say, what? Sorry, John. who are the aerospace manufacturers in Canada we have? Well, there's Bombardier, although I think they sold off their aircraft yeah. division. Or at least they sold off the C-series portion of their aircraft division. Um yeah, it might have been, yeah, actually come come to think of it. I think it was just the program they sold, not the, the whole one. Anyway, so there's Bombardier, Bell, Textron, Pratt and Whitney, Canada. Some well, really Pratt small and names. Pratt and Whitney's like. a, a big company, but they're that's just their Canadian branch on that. But they mostly make engines and components for aircraft. Not aircraft. there's a Viking Air out in Victoria, and they've been making the what's it like twin otters, and I think they even made some buffaloes under license. But yeah, not not exactly so, okay. a cutting. Yeah, we have some companies, but we don't have fighter jet manufacturers. We don't have fighter jet manufacturers. We don't have anyone that is knows how to make a a fourth generation fighter, let alone the fifth generation fighters that would have be, that the F thirty five is. And this is, I think, just a general problem with the Canadian approach to defense is that we put far too much effort on doing things made in Canada and Canadianizing equipment that we purchase from allied countries i think probably the best example of this is the off offshore arctic patrol ships the icebreakers that we got so that design was originally a norwegian one we bought the plans from norway for that then spent several years redesigning the thing to to suit our needs and quote-unquote canadianizing it by the time we'd laid the first keel for that we had actually spent more money than the Norwegians did on their entire program from drawing board to having ships at commissioned. And then we actually had to build the things. 
it's I think if the NDP wanted to offer because what they're basically saying is the government is both spending too much and it should also spend a lot more to do this. If they wanted to offer something principled here, you could just say the the liberals haven't made a strong case that we need a fighter jet program period. That's not a position you're going to agree with, Scott, but it is a position that you could expect the NDP to make, and it is more internally consistent than we shouldn't buy the F-35s, but we should develop our own. Yeah. So the other option here is I think Saab had, as part of their bid, said they would were willing to build some or all of the part of the fighters in Canada on that. Even so, it, it, there would have been a lot of startup costs to setting up a, a factory to, to make the stuff and we probably would have had to import a bunch of the parts from europe anyway so that's like maybe the steel man version of it also notably that like we don't buy enough fighter jets to keep an industry going so we either would have maybe, maybe we'd be an exporter at that's some what point. i was going to bring up now the NDP don't seem super keen on us selling arms to other countries i mean that that is how france and sweden maintain sizable defense industries in their countries, even though neither of them are really big enough to sustain a defense industry with solely domestic purchases. They sell a lot overseas. The The NLAW anti-taint system that is being used to great effect in Ukraine right now, that was mostly sent over by the Brits. The original design came from Sweden on that. The, the Brits built it under license, and now the British... The Swedish-designed, British-built missiles are destroying Russian tanks in Ukraine. So like, that is practically speaking what doing a lot of – having a sustained defense industry in Canada would mean is either massive military here to keep it supported or we sell a lot of it overseas and – the NDP has been pretty critical of that in general. And uh, my general view is that we need some sort of stuff to be made in Canada, but not all of it. And we should be taking uh, probably an approach of making sure those capacities exist within the alliance, that the NATO alliance, but other than that, not being super patriotic because there are highly technical complex things like um, – ships and aircraft that are not necessarily going to be the case where we have all the capacity and expertise to to do everything domestically. I think maybe there's another argument, like the specifics in here get outside my expertise, but I think there is an argument in here that perhaps we don't need this fancy of an airplane. Is there not something that's in between the antiques we're flying and the F-35? Like, a, a tier or two down, because this strikes me as a fairly offensive type of war machine, we, which will primarily, like it's talked about as defending the Arctic, but that only comes to just hassle the Russians when they occasionally buzz. Otherwise, like, it's going to be used for NATO offensive missions, things like we were involved in Libya and things like that. And if we want to retool our approach to foreign affairs, which we don't, but if I were to suggest a softened but not fully pacifist way, we could say maybe there's a cheaper, like mid-range plane that still meets the needs we say we have without necessarily costing us tens of billions of dollars. And also potentially like fighter jets use a lot of fossil fuels. 
this won't sign it's it's only 88 so i can't imagine it will actually factor in to the climate re- the emissions reductions we're worrying about and there's no such thing as an electric fighter jet nor will there be for quite a while i can imagine they just who knows but is there not a mid-range plane I'm asking you, Scott, just out of curiosity. So some of the stuff, like the the Super Hornet was basically a, you take the general airframe of a Hornet and completely, I think there were maybe some changes to the airframe uh, a little bit, but a little bit of changes to the, mine tweets the airframe and basically completely different internal components to, to make it a, a much better kind of, it's often referred to as like a generation 4.5 type aircraft and a couple of the other ones we were looking at fell within that so you know upgraded sensors new airframes that sort of thing there's some benefit to that since the 2010 announcement the unit cost of an f-35 has actually dropped fairly significantly over the years mostly as lockheed martin figured out some of their production difficulties on that seen somewhere it basically dropped from around i think 140 million ish per aircraft to around 80 million ish for the a model which is the general purpose my general view though on this sort of thing is that like we were talking about our fighter jets are old we don't regularly rotate through new fleets of them at all and as a result if we're going to be taking our first delivery of the F-35 in 2025, we could be flying this in 2050. And Right. So this is like how I drove my last vehicle for 10 years. Or you have those people who like drive their vehicle for 20, 30 years until it's basically falling apart. They may as well get a top-end model that's, because it amortizes better. That's my thinking, is that... We don't have a huge amount of experience with air combat these days. We're seeing some of that between kind of Generation 4 fighters from the Soviets era, that late Cold War Generation 4 fighters doing some air combat right now in Ukraine, although that's generally, I think, less than a lot of people figured. Well, actually... Probably more than some people figured, just they thought the Russians were going to get air superiority in the fir- first hours of that. But that uh, turned out not to be the case. Um, but since they do have two functioning air forces there, there doesn't quite as much air combat as I think some people would have expected in that scenario. But anyway, we don't necessarily know what the future is going to hold on that. And some degree of future proofing is probably good if this is going to be the thing we're flying for 40 years, particularly because unlike other countries, how some other countries do it, we don't operate multiple aircraft types for the tactical fighter role. And there there are good reasons for that. It's more expensive to maintain multiple types of aircraft, parts, maintenance requirements, all that. And yeah, as a result, I, I think the we should weigh things more towards the side of a generation five capability the stealth could potentially be quite useful particularly as sensors proliferate in the battle space going forward there's a bunch of reasons i can see that being useful and the days of dog fighting 
with the guns are long gone, and to the extent that air combat does happen, a lot of it is beyond visual range missiles going back and forth, and just having a plane that has a a low radar profile in that case has a lot of advantages in case we actually ever do end up in a situation where our aircraft are in a shooting war. So for those reasons, I lean a little bit towards the F-35 on where we should be going. I can see the arguments for some of the other ones, but my general view is just considering how infrequently we actually go through these and how we drag this drag out the lifespan of most equipment we operate we want something that'll potentially be useful not just in the coming decade but several decades from now one thing i will mention though is that the the f-35 is a case study in how not to run a sizable project and has had a lot of issues with its development some of which are still being sorted out and I, I think a lot of that goes back kind of to the original concept of trying to make one aircraft that will do everything that a aircraft potentially needs. And they're making carrier versions. They're making VTOL, uh, vertical landing and takeoff versions. They're trying to pack. They basically try to pack everything into it in a way that it's not necessarily ideal and it's led to some challenges trying to make a, a jack of all trades aircraft yeah i'll put a link in the show notes to a national post piece from yesterday that's five problems with america's f-35s that canada's now buying it just goes through quickly that the aircraft is reaching a 69 percent mission capability rating according to the u.s military versus the 80 percent that they wanted to see it at it's just got like little things that are so are also not like little things like they are very expensive to repair. There's some health effects being experienced by pilots and stealth coding is detaching when they're at supersonic flight. So every aircraft's going to have challenges. I'm not the expert enough to criticize those kind of in the same way that there was like way back in the original debates, the CCPA put out like a report about the risk of these aircrafts being single engine and because they'd be flying in the remote arctic might be more likely to suck up ducks and then explode and kill pilots and that would be a serious mistake if we ended up with that but i can't tell how credibly to treat that report yeah. and so i don't think we need to debate it so what like the, it was dismissed at the time because i think the government itself had looked at it and yeah the, they referenced the Starfighter, which was the plane we were flying before we were flying the F-18, and that was a that was referred to as the Widowmaker because it was basically an engine with two little stubby wings attached to it. And when the engines went out on that, when the engine went out on that thing, it was it basically turned into a long catastrophic. Dark. And yeah. since then, there have been significant improvements in engine reliability on that bird strikes are one of the things aircraft engines are tested against and as well as northern countries such as the u.s and alaska as well as finland is looking at it i believe and norway has bought 
F-35. So other countries with similar climatic conditions have also looked at the aircraft and are, have decided it is a aircraft that works for their needs. Like it is relatively new, so it has a... It's less relatively new than it was in 2010 when we first looked at it. Well, in 2010, uh, it, they only had prototypes. The first operational F-35s were 2015 when the U.S. Uh, granted them their uh, op- whatever the term is for operational approval to use. And yeah, the thing I'm most worried about with the F-35 is those maintenance issues and the stuff that's still under still being resolved. And yeah, that's what has me somewhat concerned about this. And just the last thing I'm curious about, and I haven't seen it explained anymore, is why 88 now when we were looking at 65 before? I think it's probably has to do with the unit cost know? that I mentioned earlier. We can just get more. We can more. probably get more. Uh, 65 always struck me as a very low number. So when we originally bought the F-18s, we bought, I think it was 138. We're down to about 77 now. Which means there's basically been a 50% attrition rate over the past... We basically attrited away 50% of them over the past four decades on that. And some of that is airframes wore out. Some of that is the case of crashes. Thankfully, be no combat losses of the F-18. But all of that, just I think some of them were, I think, pulled apart for parts to keep them. The other one's fine. But basically, I think that goes to show that the number you buy originally are not going to be the number you're going to be flying till the end of the operational life of the aircraft. And 65 is just not a huge number. At any time, you're going to have some that are down for maintenance, some that are on alert, whether that's actually up at alert or on standby for domestic and NORAD needs. Some of them are going to be on training mission, on training exercises, or and then you need some for deployment. And factoring all of those in, you chew through 65 aircraft very quickly. As a result, ideally, I would have liked to have, us to have purchased something around the same amount as we originally bought from the last generation of aircraft. But I think costs and other factors have limited that. But even so, 88, that's... That doesn't leave us with a huge amount of options to basically maintain our own domestic needs, service requirements, and then to deploy as needed. Guess what, Scott? We can just keep flying our CF-18s and our FA-18 Hornets. So then we got lots of airplanes. We'll just keep them all in the air as long as we can. Which might not be that long, much longer. The, the, the airframes are in pretty bad shape on, on a lot of those with the cracking and stuff that's happening. I think they should have just bought at least one more or less so that they're not making the inadvertent Hitler analogy with the 88 I'm, number there. I doubt that crossed anyone's mind on that one. So, yeah. I've seen a Twitter joke about it. Yeah, okay. But well, I don't think anyone at NDHQ necessarily case. thought about that one. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, let's move on. Yeah, the, the only thing I'll I'll say on this is that, I mean, we touched on a bit, but yeah, it, it is absolutely nuts that this has been basically a 12-year saga to, to get back to where we were, and we desperately need to get our procurement system in order so we aren't spending decades on stuff like this. 
Moving on to quick takes. Right after we recorded last week on Friday, it was announced what the relief that came to BC drivers from the high price of fuel at the pumps was, and it's a ICBC rebate of $110 to everyone who has insurance. So that means my electric vehicle that is affected zero amount by the high price of fuel, we're getting $110. The person who has to drive for work every day an excessive amount and maybe doesn't get fuel covered like a contractor or self-employed person, they're only getting $110. That's our relief. So I actually don't hate the idea that it, if you have an electric car, you're also getting some of this stuff because we, as we were talking about in an earlier segment, we have a policy in BC that is to shift towards electric vehicles. And as such, only rebating gas cars undermines the incentive structure that is part of our province's policy on that. So if you are going to do this, it makes sense. The bigger problem, though, is that why is this just about cars? This, Like, pragmatically, the answer is that ICBC had a nearly $400 million surplus they were sitting on, and it's hard for them to do anything with that except pay it out back to ratepayers without changes in legislation that would then draw accusations of raiding the piggy bank. It, it, it is still acting a bit like the, the government slush fund on that case, which is something they were uh, very critical of back when the NDP was in opposition. And yeah, just pulling 300, $300 million ish out of ICBC because they want a quick political win from sending checks out doesn't exactly match up with where they were, what they would have thought as an opposition party on that. And after some of the rocky financial situation ICBC was in a little while ago, I don't think even a reserve fund is a imprudent thing for ICBC to do. And if they do have this, if they are taking in more than they actually need, then They should probably adjust their rates rather than having this basically be sent out as a political stunt by the government. Yeah, I think it's not surprising there's a surplus given that they're still trying to figure out the cost of everything. Like The big thing that happened when they switched to enhanced care was they sent everyone a bunch of checks based on their revised rates because they ratcheted everyone down based on what they think it would need to be. And I guess they just didn't ratchet enough. So they collected too much money. And so they're just giving it back to people. Only now they're not giving it back proportionately. They're giving a flat amount back. So it does come off a bit. Like, it's not the worst policy ever. It's not Alberta like, we're going to cut the gas tax, which then you won't see because the gas companies are just going to eat that profit. Uh, And it's, or cutting random checks out of the government coffers, because this at least has some connection to drivings. But it's also like $400 million feels like it could have done something for infrastructure, like making roads safer or making more transit or doing something yeah, that buys a couple of kilometers of SkyTrain. It buys a lot of buses, I'm sure. Yeah. Hey, we could use a couple <laughs> kilometers of SkyTrain for sure. We're, uh... Or that. 
Uh, so it might not be quite enough to get to Jericho from the terminus of the, the subway extension we're going to, but at Arbutus. But yeah, it, there are definitely better things to spend $400 million on. And I'll, I'll note that the we're about five years out from when the government promised a renter's rebate to match the homeowner's grant, or at least offset the inherent unfairness to that. And that is nowhere to be seen. Every time they're asked about it, they're working on it, but it is not that they're complicated not to, to cut a check to every renter in the province. And the NDP is not that incompetent that they can't figure it out after five years. They should just come clean with British Columbians that it's not that they've abandoned the promise rather than straining everyone along with a, oh, don't worry, we're working on it. That one's always weird. But you know what ICBC could do with some of that money instead? Forgive the bills they're sending to cyclists who get run over. This story comes to us via Ben Bolliger's Twitter. Last year, he reports that he was hit by a car. He was in an accident while he was out cycling. He ended up in hospital, had major surgeries and injuries resulting from that. He's got a metal plate in his foot coming out of that the pictures are gruesome he was sent flying 14 meters and then eight months after the accident icbc sends him a letter demanding three thousand seven hundred fifty two dollars and one cent for the deductible of the damage done to the car that hit him now the way i read this is that icbc decided he's at fault because when you dig into the enhanced care faqs it says they cover cyclists and pedestrians unless they are determined to be the cause of the accident. But even if it's the case that Ben was a reckless cyclist who drove in, rode his bike directly into a car, I don't know that charging him $3,700 is a good system. Yeah, I mean, they describe it in here as uh, being built as, as an uninsured vehicle which is operating like, if icbc is gonna pull that card then it, it should only really be the case that there's actually a requirement to insure bicycles otherwise it feels it feels unfair at the very least on that and like we, we insure vehicles because they have a propensity to cause significant damage when they get into an accident in a way that a bike just doesn't and from a public policy point of view, it doesn't necessarily make sense to be dinging cyclists for that because the damage a cyclist can do to a car is a whole lot less than the amount of damage a car can do to a cyclist or anything for that matter. Apparently, it's $3,752.01 of damage. Like, fixing a car can be expensive if your windshield and gets damaged and something gets dented. The parts are ridiculously costly which is why cars get written off so easily. But putting it on the person who is at a significant, like a, a ridiculously disproportionate risk of dying here is where it seems unfair. It's being reviewed. The ministry has already been contacted. Ben's, in, Ben's a very smart and savvy guy. He's gotten a lot of attention for this. The trial lawyers are like drooling over this, which just makes me hate the story even more because I get people should have the right to defend themselves, but also let's just fix the system a little bit because thankfully there aren't many of these stories. There are a few, 
and any switch will end up with a couple of these stories. But let's tweak the system so that people who are at risk of dying in these, but the significantly risk of dying in these situations aren't liable in any way. And instead, we can promote safer cycling through better infrastructure, first and foremost, through education, and if necessary, through enforcement. The same way we promote better driving. Anyway, hope you don't have to pay the money, Ben. And finally, if you want to become a senator, now is your chance. The applications are open for British Columbia, Manitoba, Ontario, and Saskatchewan. You have until April 20th to apply. This is all part of the quote-unquote nonpartisan appointment process where you can apply to the panel that I think still has Kim Campbell on it to be a new senator. I actually considered it because it sounds like a lot of fun and a lot of money, but I am nowhere near as qualified as many of the people who've been appointed recently. Eh, why not go for it? Write me recommendation letters, dear listeners, and maybe I will put in my application for the Senate. I could sure use $150,000 a year. Actually, that was 2019 money. It's now 160. Now, is this uh, index to inflation or does the, do they just have a, like a some percentage per year escalator on there? I couldn't tell you offhand. I think it's indexed. Okay. Because it's not 2019 money. can have a couple different interpretations at this point. Anyway, we'll throw a link in the show note to the application. Yeah. And hey, if uh, any of process. our listeners become senators, uh, drop us a line. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.